Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I want to wish everyone a happy Bastille Day this week. July 4th and July 14th are both celebrations of independence and overthrowing tyrannical rule. So what better time to talk about corporate leadership and CEOs? I'm kidding about that, Ben Baldanza, but I do think it's an appropriate time to talk about airline CEOs and what's most important for successful leadership in this crazy business that we love so much. And the unsuccessful ones, too. Off with their heads, Ben. Well, I know you're kidding about the guillotine, Scott. But I agree that it is a very important topic, and we can have a lot of fun discussing it. I have some stories to tell that I hope our listeners will appreciate and some thoughts on what you have to do to be a successful leader of an airline. And we're going to talk today to Rick Shifter, a senior advisor at TPG Capital and a longtime investor and director in the airline industry around the world. I'm sure Rick has some thoughts on the differences between successful chief executives and those who haven't been so successful. Absolutely. Let me begin by stating the obvious. We are blessed to have your insight, Ben. You were a very successful airline CEO who not only grew an airline into a new sector in the U.S., the ultra-low-cost carrier, but also innovated, rewarded employees and shareholders, and throughout your career, made this industry much stronger. You changed how people fly and opened up air travel to many people for whom it was not affordable. Your recent Joseph S. Murphy Service to Industry Award was terrific and appropriate recognition of your contributions. And you also got to work with some other legends of the business. So let's begin, perhaps, with some stories of working for Bob Crandall and for Gordon Bethune. What did you learn from each of those guys? Well, I worked for both guys at different points in my career. When I worked at American under Bob Crandall, I was new to the industry. So it was a big deal when I actually got to see him and a couple years into my career actually got to present to him an analysis that our finance team had done. In Gordon's case, Gordon hired me and I reported to him for a while. And so there was more to see from Gordon. But in Bob's case, what I learned most was in my fifth week at the airline. So I'm just out of college, started working in American in July 1986 full time. And I went to a meeting that Crandall held with employees around the system to talk about the company. And in that meeting, he got asked a question that in his response, he introduced a guy in the front row and he said, this is Bob. Bob's the manager of our Oklahoma City station. Bob Tell everyone how much money you spent on rags last month in Oklahoma City. And Bob said something, and Crandall looks out over this audience, and he says, I'm telling all of you that if you run a station and you don't know how much you spend on rags, then you don't know enough about your station. And for a kid just out of college 
to hear the CEO of a big company talk about that kind of detail was really amazing to me. And it changed the way I thought about business. It made me realize I had to care about every detail. Now, that continued at American. I worked at a guy named Jake Brace, who at one point was the CFO at United. But Jake was my manager in finance. And when you'd review something with Jake, what he would want you to do is print the whole spreadsheet you had built for whatever you were modeling. And he would start in the top left and have a, a marker. And he would say, how'd you get this number? And I would say, well, we got that from the marketing department. And he'd say, show me where you got that. So I'd pull out a piece of paper that had come from the revenue group that said the yield on this Raleigh London flight should be 14 cents. And so there's the 14. So he'd say, okay, then he'd get to the next number and say, where do you get this? And I'd say, that's a calculation. And he'd pull out his calculator and said, okay, tell me what I do to get this number. And I'd say, you take that cell, you multiply by this for that, by this for that. And he'd say, okay. And he would go through the entire spreadsheet that way. And if there were any number that I could perfectly justify or show the backup to, he'd highlight it. And my job would be to go back and figure out the answer and come back. That's the kind of detail American ran at. And thinking about that made me realize that once I became a manager and a director and a vice president and even a CEO, I couldn't let that leave me. Maybe I couldn't spend my day as the CEO reviewing spreadsheets, but I had to ask the right kind of questions and I had to make sure that the company was operating at that kind of detail. And that all came from Bob Crandall. Mm, that's wonderful, wonderful insight, Ben. Well, and it might sound terrible to some people, but I can tell you, as a kid out of college, it's a great discipline to learn early in your career. Now, Gordon was a very different kind of leader. And the story I'm going to tell about Gordon is interesting. You know, Continental had this terrible situation where it was run by Frank Lorenzo, who broke the unions, and he was really vilified by the Continental team. In my first week at Continental, I heard this joke. You walk into a room, and there's Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, and Frank Lorenzo, and there's a gun with two bullets. What do you do? And the answer is you shoot Frank twice. <laughs> and, and that made me realize just how much that guy sort of was in the psyche of Continental. And Gordon realized that. So without ever saying anything bad about Frank, that's really important. He never vilified the guy. What he said was, we're not going to be like that anymore. And he started spending lots of time on the ramps in at the airports. He traveled all the time, and he started making his vision of the airline, an airline that cared about customers, that ran on time, that treated people fairly. And that was the vision he wanted. But he was also very focused around making money. 
And at that time, in the first year I worked for Continental, we weren't making a lot of money, but we made a lot of money flying from Japan to Hawaii. And Gordon would tell people, if we have to shrink the airline to just two airplanes that fly Japan, Hawaii all day, that's what we'll do, but we're going to be profitable. And that was amazing for people to hear that he would do whatever it takes to fix the things that didn't work. But he did it in a way where he listened to people, rallied people around him, gave people a vision they could get excited about. And the proof is in the pudding. Continental ended up doing very well. Gordon was a leader that was loved by all, but it wasn't because he let people get away with things. It's because he had a very clear vision and was not tolerant of mediocrity anywhere. Yeah, I think that's right on. I spent a lot of time with with Gordon. And, you know, it's interesting to to hear these reflections. Um, I think... I mean, you're so spot on right about about both of them. I, I think there are a lot of similarities, too, between Bob and Gordon. And and that attention to detail really is one of one of Gordon's great strengths is that he he, he can fly the airplane. He understands how airplanes are built. He's been a mechanic. He's been a pilot. So he can talk the talk with the employees um, and. And because he's been in those jobs, uh, he really had had great appreciation uh, for the work that those folks did and respect for it. But he could also, I think, get real down into the nitty gritty and the details. And and it's such a he used to tell you know tell me stories about meetings where you know similar to the the Japan Hawaii thing where he'd, he'd say, well, why are we doing that? And somebody would say, well, we have to fly all these flights out of Kansas City because it's strategic. And, he, and he'd kind of say, strategic for what? <laughs> and, well, if we don't do that, Northwest might get in there and what, whatever. And it was all about, yeah, but we're losing money. So it was a strategy to lose money. And, you know, no, if it doesn't make money, quit doing it. Um, and it was just the old, uh, if you're in a hole, uh, stop digging. And, and, and that's what he did. But uh, rallying the workforce, um, especially when, you know, I always thought the continental workforce was sort of, they're kind of like abused children. And, and along came Gordon, um, who, who offered hope and, and light and, and respect. And people really rallied around that. Uh, he had a v- very motivated workforce, far, far more loyal to him in many ways because of that Lorenzo experience. And, uh, and that became a real competitive edge for, for Continental. That's right, Scott. I have one more story about that, which is Continental very famously under Gordon put in this $75 per month bonus any month that Continental finished at or near the top of the on time. And his view was everybody drives on time. If someone from accounting doesn't pay a bill on time, that can affect our on time, right? If our policies around pricing are too complicated and someone gets held up at the ticket counter, that can control our on time. So his view was everybody gets the bonus or no one does. And after putting in this bonus for a couple of months, we were at a meeting with a bunch of employees. And a guy got up, an employee got up, and he said, Gordon, I want to thank you for the on-time bonus you've put in place. And for a lot of people, $75 probably doesn't seem like a lot of money. But I want to tell you what it means for me and my family. I have three kids, and they love cereal, 
But cereal is very expensive. So when we go to the grocery store, we strategically avoid the cereal aisle because we don't want to disappoint our kids when we say we can't get there. Since I've gotten this bonus, we go to the cereal aisle and we say, kids, pick whatever you want. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember that. Uh, him telling that story it's just it was it was also impactful uh, because he insisted that it be paid to people separately right it wasn't just rolled into your paycheck you got a separate check for that $75 and and then you could spend it on cereal or you could spend it on yourself or you could spend it on something special for your wife it, it became just something different than a little bump in pay you know, it's great that you remember that because I remember that argument too. Hmm. The accounting people were saying it'll be easy to just roll this into the pay. And Gordon was, no way. They're going to get a separate check. They need to know what this is, what this is for, and what they need to do to get it again. You know, I, I had the great opportunity to learn a lot from these guys over the years and get to know them personally. And I know Gordon learned a lot from Herb Kelleher too. Herb was a strategy genius who knew he had to stick to what Southwest could do best, and he maintained incredible discipline. He never picked a fight he couldn't win, and he avoided lots of fights he knew he would lose. No shame in that. Herb was a financial whiz and a legal savant and one of the funniest guys ever. He had the most unbelievable memory. And I think this is, drove a lot with his management style and what mattered with his employees. I walked through airports with Herb and he would say hi to gate agents. And then somewhere in that gigantic brain, he'd pull out the names of their children in the colleges they were attending or the medical challenges that they had faced or the time he met one of them on the elevator at headquarters. And when he did that, he had the devotion of that employee for life. Herb was almost always late to everything because he was always kissing women and shaking hands and talking to people about their lives, and they would all follow him into battle. They were motivated to work incredibly hard for him, and he expected that. People think of Southwest as all fun and games in those days. The new hires would show up expecting that, but Herb and Colleen Barrett his equally brilliant culture creator, built a company that's centered on hard work. They put their employees first, sometimes above customers, if they worked hard for Southwest. You know, there was a time when there was a sort of a strategy of, oh, the customer is always right. And people would complain, uh, customers would complain to Southwest, and they'd get letters back saying, no, you're wrong, we were right, Our, you know, and they would, they would back their employee. And I think that was really important to the culture. Herb was a showman. He understood that was part of his leadership too. The magazine stories and 60 Minutes interviews and riding a Harley dressed as Elvis, that was all image building for Southwest, making flying fun. Oh, how we miss that now, right? It was also free advertising for Southwest. He was one of the savviest marketers ever. And all the marketing was not only for customers, but also for employees. Media was one way he rallied the troops and got his message out to pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, and everyone else. Herb also had an amazing sense of fairness, and he knew how important that was in leadership. If he asked the pilots to not take a pay raise, as they did over one five-year period, he made sure he didn't have a pay raise either. I never got to work with Herb, and I only met him once. But watching him and watching his company grow was absolutely amazing. He frustrated everyone else in the industry because they knew they couldn't compete with Southwest. When I ran pricing at Continental, the walk-up fare, meaning the fare you could buy on the day of the flight between Dallas and Houston was $73. And every week for about a year, we would raise the fare 
to $74. And Southwest never matched. And it just frustrated me as the head of revenue for Continental. Why would they leave that dollar on the table? And then I started to realize they're going to do what they're going to do. And all I can do is live with that constraint. And that was Herb, who knew how he was going to run his company. And the biggest competitive advantage they have, even today with that airline, is their corporate culture. Yeah, I think that's true. They're not the low fare guy anymore. And so uh, they don't have that going for them. But the corporate culture is so important. And it's really been amazing when you think of, you know, it's it's one thing when you have 5,000 employees or 10,000 employees or even 20,000 employees uh, around the country. But now they're a much larger company. And to do what they do with the, with the culture when you are spread, not just in this country, but now internationally, uh, it really is a, a remarkable management uh, achievement. It really is. If there were a Mount Rushmore of airline execs, Herb would absolutely be there. Yes, he would. He, he he would in many ways be uh, be on top of Mount Rushmore, and and everybody else uh, fall, falls in line under him. That's probably right. You know, another great leader I got to work with Scott was Federico Block, who led Grupo Taco for two decades and grew it into one of South America's largest airlines. He would tragically was shot to death at age 50, but he had an enormous impact on the industry and on me. When I worked for Taka, Federico said to me on my first week there, Ben, you have to, in life, make money and have fun. Because if you're having fun and not making money, it's not going to last long. And if you're making money but not having fun, then life just isn't worth it. And he told me that, and I thought that was interesting. But over the next three years, I saw that Federico lived that mantra to an extreme He was very profit-focused and was always looking at the next great deal. One day he walked into my office and said, Ben, I got a great deal on six Cessna caravans. We have to start a domestic airline in Guatemala. And I'm like, that's not the way it works. You don't get the the planes first and decide what to do. Figure out what you're going to do and then go find the planes. But that was Federico. He had the great deal, so he went and did it. But he also had a lot of fun. He was a sailor. He flew. He flew his own helicopter around the country and loved taking me and others for rides to show things in the country, in the region. He was just a real force of nature who knew how to live. He talked glowingly about his own personal travel, talked about a trip to Kabul, Afghanistan he took, and what happened there and the people he met. He loved people. He loved traveling. He loved having fun. But when he was in the office, he was all business. The other thing about Federico which was interesting, is between 3 and 3.15 every day, he would close his door and take a nap in his office. (laughs) And it was only 15 minutes, but he would claim that that allowed him to start early in the morning and go late into the night with just that little recharge. But everyone knew not to schedule Federico within that 15 minutes 
not to call him and certainly not to knock on the door. That's so interesting. <laughs> so, so quirky. Ben, what became obvious to me after covering CEOs in this business for 30 years is that an airline CEO is really the football coach, right? This is a service business. And what really matters is the ability to motivate the troops. The players are the ones who have to execute and the coach has to get them fired up and willing to sacrifice to win the game. The super successful airline leaders, Crandall, Kelleher, Bethune, Gary Kelly, Doug Parker, Ed Bastian, David Nealman, Michael O'Leary, Tim Clark, they all had the support of their employees and they were or are great at motivating their employees, firing them up for battle, showing them a game plan to execute and leading them to victory. And once the CEO loses the support of labor, it's over. It may take a while, but it's over. Don Carty at American, Leo Mullen at Delta, Jim Parker at Southwest, Glenn Tilton at United, nine guys in 10 years at Continental before Gordon Bethune. Once they lost labor, they were done. You're right about that, Scott. And if you remember when Gordon was on our show, he said, you never lie to your doctor, your lawyer, or your employees. And that was really important to him. He would tell employees anything without putting the company at risk, of course. But he would never sort of sugarcoat bad news to employees. But every time he talked about bad news, he would say, and here's what we're going to do about it, and here's how we're going to win. And people started to realize that they didn't need to hold bad information from Gordon. They didn't need to hide it. They could tell him because he wouldn't look to blame that person. He would go into problem-solving mode and say, what can we do about that? Interesting. Interesting. You know, I had the great opportunity to take both Herb and Gordon flying in my uh, little Cirrus air- airplane. And and Herb, it was fascinating. Herb was was so curious about the airplane, about Cirrus, because the two brothers who started Cirrus uh, had really taken over the the single engine market from Cessna, and uh, and I, I said to Herb, "Why did you want to do this?" And and he said, um, "Because those guys, that's the same story as Southwest. They came up with something better, and they changed the industry." And he was a a steady, sure hand at the stick. I was amazed at how solid he was flying the airplane. Um, and he had, you know, I think messed around in simulators and, and stuff, but um, it was it was really fascinating to see Herb fly because he just figured it out so quickly. Gordon, Gordon was such a, an experienced pilot, and, uh, and I got to uh, fly a 757 with Gordon um, uh, preparing for a delivery flight, but he got in the Cirrus. And we would fly around, and then we'd get uh, get close to doing a touch and go. And he'd say, "Your airplane," and I'd say, "Don't you want to land it?" And he said, "No, I don't want to. I don't want to take the chance of messing up your airplane." And I thought that was that was really Gordon too, because he was he was very careful not to make mistakes, and and sometimes we forget about that as well. You're right. The world benefits from good leaders in every kind of industry. I'm sure if this were a banking podcast or a retail podcast mm. or a manufacturing podcast, we'd have stories of great leaders in those businesses. But the airline leaders sometimes end up looking bigger than life, don't yeah. they? Yeah, they do. They do. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, to offer more connectivity, to create additional partnerships, and to focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. 
Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. We also want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Now let's talk to Rick Shifter about investing in the airline business and what he thinks separates the successful CEOs from the less successful ones. Rick and I first met back in the 1990s when I worked for Continental Airlines and Rick and his partners owned Continental, so Rick was on the board. That was when TPG was known as Air Partners back then. So Rick, it's great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben and Scott. Thanks for having me. So, Rick, how long have you been investing in airlines? So, first of all, I think I should explain the nature of our investments. Uh, we uh, aren't uh, a firm that simply purchases stock in, in companies. What we do is we look to acquire uh, controlling stakes in businesses or at least uh, positions of significant influence. Uh, and the uh, the first one that we did was uh, the acquisition of Continental Airlines uh, in partnership with Air Canada through a Chapter 11 process uh, that closed in uh, April of 93. And just to uh, correct a, a couple things that you said, one, I uh, was a partner at TPG for 20 years, currently a senior advisor. Uh, two, I didn't actually serve on the board of Continental, although I was actively involved um, with management, including you, on a variety of, uh, of issues. Uh, and while the formation of Air Partners was to do that one-off transaction, that really became the launching pad for TPG, or as it was known then, Texas Pacific Group. But uh, as I said, that, that was our first uh, deal in the industry. And Rick, as I recall, that also later included the acquisition of America West, and when you when you sold out of all that, it truly was the greatest investment ever in the history of the airline business. Uh, is, is, that's my recollection. Is that right? Well, the the America West investment was a separate investment. Um, it was discrete. We actually did that in partnership with uh, with Continental, but uh, it's not that the the companies ever merged. In fact, Continental subsequently sold its stake back to. To America West, but Continental investment as a standalone investment was probably the most successful investment at that time. Uh, certainly, by any private equity firm in uh, in the airline industry, uh, it may have been surpassed since that uh, since that time. But it was uh, a deal that worked out quite well. It it really did. So investors view airlines differently than customers. When you look at an airline to invest in to acquire. How important is customer service in your evaluation? Well, again, we are looking to acquire uh, significant stakes in airlines where uh, we think as a result of our active engagement, uh, we can do something transformational. And the factors that we typically look at in evaluating uh, whether a particular airline presents an interesting opportunity for us is one, where are we in the cycle? Uh, this is a very cyclical business. and and if you're at the peak of the cycle and values are high, you know, it's probably a time to sort of generally stay away. Um, so timing is important. Uh, we look for airlines typically with lower cost structures and with uh, competitive advantages that we consider to be sustainable. Uh, they have to have a, a management team that, that uh, can execute effectively and 
the valuation has to be right. So the price has to be right. So in that list of things, customer service doesn't really come up as a prime criteria. That being said, however, customer service is ultimately very important. And the continental investment is an example of that. Um, so again, we were looking at uh, the company in the, you know 1992, closed the transaction in 1993. And as you may recall, and I'm sure Ben recalls, at that time, uh, customers had a very negative experience on Continental Airlines. People tended to book away um, and choose um, whatever other airline was offering uh, similar routing uh, rather than book on Continental. As a consequence, Continental was achieving um, unit revenue that was about 90% of the industry average. And one of our uh, theses on the investment was, gee, if we could narrow that gap to 95% of industry average unit revenue, that, that five points improvement on $6 billion of revenue would add $300 million to pre-tax profit. Uh, and so we thought that there were some pretty basic blocking and tackling that could be done that would help narrow the gap. Well, a year and a half into the investment, we were at about uh, 80 to 85% of uh, industries average unit revenue. And, and and a lot of it was the, the legacy of the, uh, frankly, the Lorenzo era at Continental, where uh, he was successful through an earlier Chapter 11 proceeding uh, to uh, break the back of, of the unions. And as a consequence, many of the employees hated the company they worked for and took it out on the passengers. Uh, and that was a much more challenging thing to change. But given you know, where we were with that investment a year and a half in, we did make uh, changes at uh, the senior level and uh, Gordon Bethune became a CEO and his focus was really um, driving employee attitudes, uh, making much more favorable to the company, which then in fact would translate into better customer service. And as a consequence, uh, then um, within a few years, we had a nice um, momentum in the industry as a whole, but Continental was achieving 110% of industry average unit revenue. And that's what really made the investment so successful. So, so I think, you know, there are a lot of things we got right with respect to the, the Continental investment, but, but one of the major things was really driving uh, employee attitudes towards the airline and resulting in superior customer service. Um, and, and that uh, made a real difference. And if you look at airlines today, I think the ones that really focus on culture and develop a sense of pride among employees, deliver a much better product and do quite well. So uh, so it, it, it is a factor to be taken into account in um, the analysis. As I said, it's not necessarily a big driver, but it can be a significant uh, component in driving particular outcomes. Well, Rick, low-cost airlines have been growing on every populated continent why do you think these have been such popular investments for investors like you? Well, ultimately, uh, they, they become good investments because they are they're good businesses. Uh, and uh, you know the the two most uh, significant factors in driving um, a consumer's decision as to which airline to travel on is uh, price and schedule and low cost carriers by definition are trying to uh, offer products in their market that are that are low cost. Uh, and as a consequence, they can take share from legacy carriers with higher cost structures that may not be in a position to uh, be as aggressive on pricing, but two, they also stimulate uh, demand. And particularly in emerging markets, but not limited to those. I mean, certainly it was the case with, with Ryanair, they could stimulate uh, a significant amount of uh, air traffic um, by offering uh, an attractive product at a at a low price, um, and so it's it's the ability to to see those uh, companies grow significantly, you know, without the challenges of legacy carriers that uh, result in in more attractive investments. So airline business travel is stuck volume wise at at about eighty percent of two thousand nineteen. Does this change your view of airlines as an investment? And, and I'm curious, does your own personal travel match the same kind of change? Well, 
as to the second question, I think I'm probably over 80% of what I was at the pre-pandemic levels. And, and while uh, you know, technology and the ability to, to do uh, Zoom or other sorts of um, uh, video transmissions and calls uh, has obviated the need of some, for some travel, I still actually do a fair amount of business travel. But you know, that, that might not be the, the case um, you know, for many people. But uh, I think what you have is you're at a lower base, but I would expect that while passenger traffic or leisure traffic rather has uh, clearly snapped back to uh, pre-pandemic levels, you're right that, that for business traffic, it hasn't snapped back, but that doesn't mean it won't continue to grow. And maybe it, at least domestically, the growth rate is more consistent with GDP growth, is, which is what you generally expect the airline industry overall to grow. So there, you know, and I think that frankly, there will be uh, significant growth in uh, corporate international travel that that has uh, been more of a laggard. But I think you know, over time, it doesn't really matter uh, what the volume is of business travel relative to 2019. It is what is it relative to last year? Okay, and if year over year you're seeing growth in business travel consistent with, you know, sort of GDP growth, then, then, you know, that's what you expect from the airline industry. Mm. And what you look for from investments is, um, you know, individual airlines that perhaps have a differentiated strategy that may be able to outperform the industry and grow faster. Well, Rick, one of the biggest things facing the industry now is that pilot wages are rising faster than inflation and most importantly, faster than unit revenues. So as an investor, what would you want to see airlines do in this kind of environment? Well, I think, you know, ultimately, the pilot wages is a function of uh, supply and demand. And, uh, you know, there is an issue in terms of uh, pilot availability. And as airlines are growing capacity, you know, there's sort of more demand. Uh, for pilots, and it's not surprising that you may see wages grow at a faster pace than inflation. And ultimately, that will uh, play itself out in increased fares. And so, yeah, maybe unit revenue is lagging at this point, but uh, I think the industry uh, tends, at least in this country, to price rationally and ultimately uh, will adjust fares to uh, recognize increased pilot costs. That being said, um, for individual airlines, there are a number of things I think to, to take a look at. One, if in the context of negotiating new pilot agreements and recognizing uh, perhaps the need to increase the wage structure, there are other gains that can be achieved in terms of uh, productivity, uh, where you get more from your pilots, and so maybe you don't need as many pilots uh, going forward to continue to grow. You can get other uh, concessions that can perhaps ameliorate training costs uh, by having pilots stay on the particular equipment they're trained on uh, and not switching aircraft, which uh, results in airlines incurring significant uh, retraining costs. Um, you can look for ways to develop uh, programs to retain pilots uh, to make them less susceptible to jumping ship. Now, you know, generally given the seniority structure within the industry, there isn't a lot of movement of pilots between airlines, but still, Maybe looking for ways to, um, you know, ensure they don't retire early, et cetera. Uh, and then also, I think you need to be concerned about whether uh, the, the, you're attracting enough new pilots coming in because uh, they're, uh, as I said, I think there's a, you know, a shortage in the industry. Scott Kirby's talked about it at some length. And, and for some carriers, particularly uh, smaller carriers or earlier stage carriers, uh, they may have trouble fulfilling our expectations for growth um, simply because they can't hire enough pilots. So what's the difference between airlines that excel and airlines that lag? Is it, is it management? Is it employees? Um, dependability or just, just market forces? Well, the market forces, um, you know, I think are generally uh, the same in any particular geographic market. So by definition, you know, the, the, the ones that are doing well and the laggards are uh, being impacted by the same market forces. So it's something else. And I would start with the underlying business model. Uh, is Does the model, you know, make sense and allow the carrier to achieve a competitive advantage? Um, and that may 
be uh, you know a route structure that is uh, less competitive than uh, than someone else's. Uh, for legacy carriers, it usually means a fortress hub where they they have a hub that uh, just their uh, the frequency advantage they have over the competition allows them to uh, uh, to achieve some revenue premium as a result. Um, so that would be the first first issue for me would be sort of really understanding the the relative business models, but um, but the role that management plays um, <clears throat> is certainly a significant factor. And I think the you know the the um, culture of the employees is significant, but that's driven by management. So if you have management focused on culture and improving the culture of the airline, then that should take care of itself in terms of you know it's a, the issue is having the right management team. So. So I'd say it's a combination of uh, the strategy of the company and the quality of the management team. Well, Rick, you mentioned that the Continental deal was a good deal. But in your history of all airlines that you've invested in, what are the best and worst decisions that you think you've made? Well, uh, the, the worst is pretty obvious. Um, we acquired Midwest Airlines uh, in partnership with Northwest Airlines um, in 2006. And you know, at the beginning of this conversation, I identified the criteria uh, we usually apply to uh, making airline investments. Uh, and in the context of Midwest, for the most part, those did not apply. Now, why did we go ahead and do it? Well, uh, Midwest was a, a small largely regional carrier uh, with a hub in Milwaukee. Northwest uh, uh, had a hub in Minneapolis, and so relatively close by. AirTran uh, was attempting a hostile takeover of Midwest Airlines, which was publicly traded, and Northwest really wanted to block AirTran from effectuating that transaction. But given its commitments under its labor contracts, at that time, uh, it, it, it couldn't do an acquisition of Midwest without snapback clauses in the contracts they had negotiated during the Chapter 11 coming into effect and increasing their costs. So they came to us to see if we would partner with them uh, to acquire Midwest with the expectation that, um, although not you know explicitly committed, uh, that after uh, they got through their next round of contract negotiations, they'd be in a position ultimately to uh, fold North uh, Midwest into Northwest, and that would be you know our exit. So, so we sort of viewed it as okay, well, let's structure something very interesting, you know, that puts us at the top of the capital structure and get us a disproportionate share of the profits and so forth. So, so I think we structured a very clever deal, um, while at the same time, you know, sort of ignoring the fundamentals we typically relied upon. Um, what subsequently happened, though, was um, one, uh, oil went to about $200 a barrel um, in 2007, which it, it was so rapid that that put huge pressure and, on uh, Midwest and, uh, and challenged its liquidity. And as a smaller airline, it just has a disproportionate impact. It couldn't absorb those cost increases the same way as a legacy carrier could. Um, but then in addition to that, Northwest had come to an agreement with Delta to merge with Delta. Um, and as a consequence, uh, they were not interested in providing any support to Midwest because they didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize antitrust uh, review by the Justice Department of the Delta Northwest merger. And so they sort of abandoned us as a partner and, and we were in a, our ultimate exit strategy was um, looking dubious. Uh, and so as a result, we ended up selling Midwest to uh, Republic Airlines, which had acquired Frontier uh, and, and then merged Frontier into Midwest. But the, um, that was uh, uh, a, money, a transaction which we lost money, which um, doesn't apply to any of the other airline deals we did. Um, <laughs> you know, the other one, Continental, as I uh, said, was, was successful. The other one was the, of particular note was uh, Ryanair, and we acquired a 20% stake in Ryanair in 1995. This is when the company was still private. Actually, I think it was 1996, um, and owned by the uh, Ryan family, Tony Ryan, and, and they had a vision of 
ultimately taking Ryanair public, uh, but the last time there had been an IPO in Ireland had been several years earlier with GPA, uh, Guinness Speed Aviation, an aircraft leasing company that at the time was in fact controlled by uh, Tony Ryan, and that IPO failed, um, and that um, it left a, a, a stigma um, and, and challenges in the uh, Irish uh, capital markets. And so Tony was interested in bringing us in uh, and willing to sell us a 20% stake on attractive terms just to be able to establish credibility since we had done the Continental and uh, America West deals at that point. David Bonnerman, uh, my partner, became chair of the board at, at Riot Air and uh, under the leadership of Michael O'Leary, you know, we've seen phenomenal growth since then. So, uh, so that one ended up uh, being a very successful investment as well. I'd say so. If you could give advice to any airline CEO, what would it be? Well, I, you know, I think uh, most of it may be obvious. I mean, I think, I think the, um, the great CEOs have great teams. So uh, it's, you know, number one would be to, you know, insist on having an A team and, and uh, be somewhat ruthless in um, upgrading talent where, where you can. So it shouldn't, shouldn't be that it's just you only replace people who are, you know, clear underperformers. But if you, you know, have a spot where, you could be getting, you know, great, and all you're getting good is good, um, opt for great, and that applies, frankly, to uh, you know, to all industries, not not just the airline industry. Uh, but the other thing, which is the point we talked about earlier, is I think I think, you know, the a real differential beyond sort of business strategy is culture, and where you can get uh, the the employees to um, really engage and uh, respect. The organization they work for, you get the better customer service, and you know Southwest is a, a great example of it. I think JetBlue does does a great job, and the you know other carriers that that have really sort of focused on on that intentionally, and and sometimes it takes a you know a charismatic leader to be able to drive that, but um, you know tr- sort of trying to figure out how you can make culture a competitive advantage uh, is something that I think can be a real differentiator uh, in this industry. Well, Rick, before we let you go, our listeners need to know that TPG invests in lots of things other than airlines, too. What are some of the most non-airline interesting investments you've made? (laughs) Well, um, I mean, you know, for TPG as a whole, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty long list. If you want to ask me personally, because I do um, have done investments in, in other sectors as, as well, the one that stands out is a company called LPL Financial, uh, which we acquired from its founder uh, at the end of 2005. Uh, and uh, it's a wealth management company that uh, today has a network of 20,000 financial advisors around the country. And it's a it's very interesting business. It's it, one of the things I like about it is um, its clients are the financial advisors. And when they do well, we do well. So it's not, um, you know, a zero sum game where you're, uh, everything is, you know, a little bit of a battle in terms of price or whatever. Um, it is, uh, uh, it's a win-win sort of formula. And uh, there's a ton of innovation in this business uh and uh it's been it's been great to see this this company grow and it's you know now the market cap is over 20 times greater than when we made the investment tpg you know exited a number of years ago but i do continue to serve on the on the board and uh, it's a fun company to be associated with well thank you so much rick for your insights for the money you've put into this industry there are names in this industry that people know well, like Herb Kelleher or Frank Lorenzo, who you mentioned. You're someone that I think a lot of people should know about, but you're always sort of have been behind the scenes. But thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your mindset. Well, Ben and Scott, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, and good luck with your podcast. Thanks so much, Rick. It's great to catch up and, uh, and really appreciate the conversation. And we'll be back with more on Airlines Confidential 
in a minute. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Rick for sharing a lot of wisdom about this fascinating business. Ben, in this week's mailbag, Joe from Texas pointed out that there have been several tragic deaths in the business from workers getting too close to engines. Hi, guys. Love the show. I have been reading too many articles about ramp employees being sucked into running jet engines. Why haven't any airlines installed taxi bots to save fuel and make the workplace safer? Joe sent this question before the medical examiner in San Antonio ruled the most recent death a suicide. So tragic, but apparently not an accident. That said, I think his point remains. Would taxi bots not only save fuel, but also get workers away from potential danger of jet engines? Ben, my impression is that there are cost issues, not only the upfront cost and maintenance on a new system, but also the added weight of carrying around an electric motor driving the nose wheel. And there's skepticism that electric power can taxi a big airplane, I think. Maybe one airline, perhaps an innovative startup, needs to take the plunge and show that it works and is better for the environment, the bottom line, and the workforce. What do you think? I agree, Scott. I think it's a cost issue, but I think it's a evolution of the technology issue, too. It's not obviously a better solution yet, and there are issues in how it would be deployed So I think an airline would spend the money if they thought it really could do regularly what it can do. The issue of employees getting sucked into engines, which is terrible, is another issue for leadership, too. It's about compliance to policy. Mm -hmm. Every airline has policies that would ensure that employees get nowhere near the engine. And one of the challenges the industry has had, Scott, in the last year is having to hire so many new people to ramp up for the big increase in demand is that at every level in the airline, there are a lot of new employees. And my guess is the people who have had that sort of terrible accident over the last year are probably all new employees who haven't spent a lot of time on the ramp and haven't been as well-versed in the airline's policies. So there's a compliance issue that becomes exacerbated when you have new employees that I think is related to this too. Yeah, and maybe more, even more exacerbated because um, a lot of ramp workers now are outsourced at, at outstations. And so they may not even be an airline employee, but working for a contractor. That's right, but I'm sure those contractors have policies so people don't get hurt too. Yeah, yeah. One more note to share, this one from Aram from DFW, who has some interesting comments about the cost of sustainability and other airline issues. Hello, gents. It's been a while since I sent in a comment. First, when it comes to satisfaction, I do find it interesting that airlines get the brunt of criticism when hotels are let off the hook. As a frequent traveler, it is now commonplace to not have housekeeping at major hotels. I stayed at one location for four days, and I was told to call if I needed new towels. Funny that they cut a service, yet the rates are the same or higher as before the pandemic. Second, do you remember ordering room service with fancy carts that they rolled in and took off the metal covers to reveal your food? No more. Now it's the same price with the food in a paper or plastic bag. Might as well have ordered DoorDash, which I do now, he says. And with regards to paying more for sustainability, as a Hertz renter, I thought it would be great to rent an EV on my next trip in a few weeks. No dice. My corporate rate for a large sedan is about $40 a day for a total of $191 with taxes and fees. The EV, Tesla Model 3, 
$215 a day or $755 for the trip. Sorry, corporate would not be happy if I did that. I feel that it would be the same for flights. As much as we want to help the environment, corporate travel is always looking for you to save money. Love the guests on the show and congrats to Ben for the well-deserved honor. Well, thanks so much for the great comments, Arun. I agree with you about the hotel, but I think what happened there is the pandemic taught them that they could not do those services and people didn't mind so much. So if you remember during the pandemic, when people weren't traveling that much, they didn't want to send people to your room because they didn't want the interaction. Then when things change, they say, hey, people use their towels two days in a row. So maybe we don't have to change them. And I think they've started to figure out that they can do less, like you say, and keep it going even though the pandemic is effectively over. In terms of the EV, it hurts. I totally agree with you. I don't think that's going to be successful at Hertz until they find a way to profitably offer the cars at basically the same rates as the electric vehicle. There is one trade-off at Hertz. If you rent a Hertz gas-powered car, you need to either buy the tank of gas or return the car full. If you buy the EV, they don't ask you to recharge the car. They just say, make sure the battery has at least 10%. So it is possible that even though the rate was higher for that Tesla 3, your total cost to the company might have been less since maybe you wouldn't have had to buy gas. Now, if you're only going 10 miles on the whole trip, that wouldn't have been a big deal for you. But great comments, Arun. Please send your questions and comments to us at airlinesconfidential.com. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.